hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's first dawn in Ethiopia, the East African sky ablaze already with bands of blue, pink, and gold as the sun peaks over the horizon. Back home in Egypt, you've seen the sun rise over the Red Sea time and again, and this familiar ritual is just the piece of home you need right now in a foreign land. The spell and your peace is broken when someone else from your camp taps you on the shoulder and motions you to follow. You feel the anticipation crackling in the air as you all set out on a specialized, dangerous mission, acutely aware that some of you might not return from it. But you're being paid far too much to back out now. That danger money is pretty great by any standard. And the rewards if you succeed? Well, you've been imagining that in your dreams for weeks now. And so today, you'll be the one to lead the ambush. You're only a mile or so from your camp before an unmistakable sound in the distance stops everyone in their tracks. They're here, you think. A signal for one of your companions sends a jolt through your body, and without thinking twice, you scale the sturdiest-looking tree nearby and hide yourself amidst its foliage. Your companions scatter as planned, all poised to jump to your aid once the ambush begins. You've brought a knife. They've brought the rope. You hear it again, closer this time, louder and more powerful. Then you spot them through the foliage. The majestic, terrifying prizes you're all here to bag. The largest of them, presumably the mother, leads three small elephants calmly in her wake. You feel every step she takes in bursts of electricity through your chest. You tighten your leg muscles, position your weapon. One, two, Three, you take a deep breath and hold it as you take your life into your own hands and leap from the tree to make the kill. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time and across cultures. Today's episode features the inimitable Tim Moeller and the ancient elephant traders of Hellenistic period Egypt. We're talking around the third century BC, so a long time ago. And aside from the fascinating historical trade in elephants and the various ways people used these magnificent creatures in the past, I spoke with Tim about the modern ivory trade, a global market that's both stunningly complex and in desperate need of attention from the international community. Tim earned a master's in African studies from Oxford University and a master's in ancient history and classical archaeology from University of Edinburgh. He is a guide at the Roman Baths, in Bath, and the Royal Yacht Britannia Museums. He mentors international students and leads trips to cities across the UK, explaining their cultural significance in an accessible but engaging manner. He recently provided historical voice parts for Dan Snow's History Hit podcasts and works on the Return of the Icons project for Afford UK. Tim sees systems of change over time and contact between peoples as key to understanding the human story, and he applies this lens to diverse research interests ranging from Byzantine architecture to the relatively recent railway systems. His current study of elephants found its seed in a grandmother who collected loxodontal figurines. And don't worry, I'm going to ask him what that is, because I want to know too. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the more fascinating examples of animal domestication and the political, economic, and social implications of it. We're talking elephant traders in the Hellenistic period. So, Tim, this is a kind of big and unwieldy topic, uh, kind of like an elephant, so it's, yes. it's perfect. Uh, could you give us a little context for our conversation today? You know, where in the world are we going to be focusing and what's the time period and 
what's the kind of history and culture 101 we need to know to understand um, how this elephant trade fit into what was going on in this part of the world at the time generally? Yes, well, we are focused in on the eastern part of the Mediterranean, looking out to Asia and then south into Africa as well, and including Arabia and the Indian Ocean. And this period is known as the Hellenistic period because it's in the wake of Alexander the Great, uh, the King of Macedon, uh, stomping all over uh, the, the, the known world uh, as far as the, uh, the Indian subcontinent and as far um, into Africa as Egypt as well. And one of the things that he discovered uh, with his contact uh, in India was that the Indians used elephants uh, in, in warfare and in societal uh, rights as well. And thought, well, this is this is excellent, really. Um, and brought yeah, these back. That's not to... just some horse or something. <laughs> yes. I can only imagine what kind of impact this would have made on him. Wow. All right. Yes. And in the mind of the, the Hellenistic philosophers as well, this idea of this, this great, big, huge animal. Of course, it came uh, from India. This was brought back to uh, the, the Mediterranean world. When Alexander dies, there's a complete bloodbath. Uh, amongst his followers and they all scrabble around deciding who's going to be in charge and after a period of about 20 years you find that uh, there's one dynasty in Asia Minor uh, run by the Seleucids and they have the direct access to the, the elephants. Um, the other dynasty, uh, the dynasty for which I'm most concerned with is the Ptolemies who set up in Egypt and they are cut off from this source of elephants uh, coming directly from India, particularly when they fall out with their Seleucid cousins. And so they look south. They look south to Sudan, to the region of, well, it was called Ethiopia at the time. And the extraction uh, of elephants from this Ethiopian region in the, uh, the Horn of Africa um, is one of the, you know, the richest periods of, of elephant cultivation uh, anywhere to be found. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so just to be sure, I'm, I've followed you. That, that, that was a terrific, very succinct history covering quite a bit of time and geography. So the, the Ptolemies are the dynasty that we're going to be focusing on. And they're, of course, the, the pharaohs of the time, right, with the, mm -hmm. the Greek connections. Um, and elephants were no longer available from India. So they turned south to Ethiopia to try to find the source of these wondrous animals. Yes, that's completely correct. Fantastic. I got it. And <laughs> before we go farther, I do really want to know what a loxodontal figurine is. <laughs> well, the word loxodonta um, is part of the, the genus and species for the African elephant. It's the loxodonta africana. Oh, okay. And the loxodonta literally means it's the sloop-toothed animal. Um, Sloop considering, <laughs> yeah, I know, extraordinary. <laughs> considering you know all of the remarkable characteristics of these great big heffalumps, uh, the, the thing that the scientists have decided is its distinguishing feature is that its teeth um, grind down, um, which they do. And actually, this this dictates the lifespan of an elephant. By the time its last teeth fall out, when it's uh, between sixty and eighty years old. Uh, it's come to the end of its natural life. And if it's not died from anything else, then it, it sadly dies of starvation, uh, which is really well, quite Well, because it can't eat. Exactly, yes. That's a horrible way to go. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, <laughs> well, I wonder if you'd rather be shot or something like that beforehand. Well, I don't know, but maybe, wow. Well, that, that sort of ups the pathos of this whole conversation. <laughs> makes it a little bit more of a, of a moral quandary. Is it better to be hunted before you lose your teeth and you're going to waste away all right yes. wow we well with that elephant <laughs> dentures or something like that oh yeah yeah it, it, with that if you could do us a great favor and drop us right into the shoes of one of these elephant hunters and give us a day in their life how does their day begin what are they worried about well you are probably um tremendously homesick because you've been away from your native Egyptian land for a couple of months. You've sailed down the Red Sea and you're based in one of the ports sat on the, the African coast of the Red Sea. Um, the hinterland looking inland 
is certainly not territory that you as a Ptolemaic Egyptian control. And there are uh, local tribes who um, you know, intercess with the elephants in their own way. Certainly the classical accounts speak of these tribes who hunt the elephants for food. The time that you're going to be going is in the early morning and you'll be wanting to go at this time of year uh, just as the rains have started. So the bushland is uh, relatively, um, you can see through it, um, but the, it, it's cool enough for the elephants to be you know, coming out to play effectively. Oh. Um, the ancient sources are really interesting in terms of what they talk about with ancient elephant hunters because the emphasis is on the bravado of elephant hunting. They sit up in trees waiting for these elephants and then they will jump down on the back of one of them, grab it by the tail uh, and hopefully swing underneath it and hamstring it, cut its hamstrings with a, uh, a sarissa or a knife or something like oh, this. Oh, it's an ambush. Yes, completely. That sounds kind of dirty, actually. I, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you... Wow. Yeah, but I guess course, how else do you overpower an animal of this size? I mean, how big is, is one of these elephants, roughly speaking? I know there's different species and different sizes. What, what mm -hmm. are we talking about in this case? Anywhere from three meters, three and a half meters, up to four and a half meters. The, the, the largest specimens of the Loxodonta africana, oh, uh, the African oh, elephant. So, wow. So like 10 to 16 feet yes. in imperial terms. Wow, that's a big animal. Um, but are you going to go after one of these, these big animals, one of these big tuskers, um, as, as they would be called, a, a male elephant with uh, you know, the, the largest ivory? And if your object is ivory, then yes, of course, those are the ones that you want. If, however, you're wanting to go and capture uh, one of these animals to go and train them and use them for war, then ideally what you want is one of the smaller animals. You want to isolate the infants from its mother. And this might involve you know, ambushing the mother, killing her necessarily, uh, to separate her from her young, who can then be taken away and tamed. Uh, so there are all sorts of calculations you've got to be doing in your head as the elephant hunter, when you're sat up in your right. tree or hiding in a bush, going, well, what am I after? What is specifically my mission? Um, yeah. Oh, that, that's interesting. Okay, so walk us through that then. So what are the different uses one of these elephant hunters would have in mind? You've mentioned ivory, you've mentioned war. Mm -hmm. um, you also mentioned earlier that some, some groups, I'm thinking not these elephant hunters who came from uh, you know, elsewhere in a sort of a colonial operation, but some groups ate them. Yes. And it is unfortunate that our only understanding of these local tribes are through the colonial accounts uh, of the. Isn't that the, always the, the way? Completely so. And mm -hmm. uh, you know the problematic term of the troglodyte, the cave dweller, comes from this time period, um, and you find that uh, in the in the classical accounts when they talk about the troglodytes, the local cave dwellers eating the elephants. It's always the emphasis being placed on you know, these barbarous native people doing these strange things. When we, uh, noble Greco-Romans uh, or noble Egyptians, we want them for war or we want them for ivory. <laughs> That's um, wonderfully hypocritical. <laughs> yes. But it's considering that these people are you know, invading essentially another territory and robbing yeah. it of its resources. Taking, taking what they want. Um, but of course, I think the, the reality is that the, the local tribes, to a certain extent, would have worked with the, the Ptolemaic hunters, and particularly with ivory. If ivory is your game, then unfortunately, you've got to go and kill the elephant. There's no other way of extracting right. it, uh, because you've got to hack it literally from the skull of the animal. It's, it's gory and nasty. Um, and, you know, if you've killed the animal to go and eat it for its flesh, you might as well go and um, right, trade right, in the ivory. Right. Um, that so seems arguably, like that's efficient use of, of resources. Yes, completely so. And the only way one learns about this is just through inferences to modern practices and, and modern literature. There's an extraordinary book by Wilbur Smith, there we go, um, called Elephant Song, and it looks at illegal ivory poaching. Um, and elephants that are culled, the meat is then 
packaged up and frozen uh, to be sent off to the capital city to go and feed uh, the, uh, the local population. And the ivory can then be traded upon. Um, so one imagines that there is a similar process in the ancient world. Right. But of course, uh, you know, on the one hand, that is fulfilling what was probably longstanding traditional dietary practices among the local population in, in terms of providing them with elephant meat that they were used to subsisting on. But it's taking this um, element of the elephant that, that has an economic value uh, aside from its utility as food and giving those resources to the, you know, the colonizers. Again, you know, things just, things are, are pretty predictable when, when you're looking at a construct such as that, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so looking for the, the inland trade um, through Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt, going down the Nile, um, finding evidence of ivory storage units, particularly outside of Egypt, uh, can help to demonstrate that there is still a local voice, a local actor that is profiting upon this trade. And it's not all suddenly being taken out to the Red Sea and shipped up directly to Egypt. Um, so it's really a, a mission in, in unpicking this, this colonial narrative. Yeah, and it can get so complex, but uh, it is amazing. Um, I mean, my own work is in um, the, the colonial expansion of, of English, people mostly into the Atlantic world. And yeah, there's, there's always some evidence for local voices for native voices but as you say it can be very hard to unpick it because the dominant narrative is written by the invader that's just mm -hmm. the way it is history is written by the sadly the victor sometimes tim where does this job of elephant hunter and trader come from where did it originate and when well there's an indian influence certainly and this is seen in the quality of the elephant trainer, the person who teaches the elephant to go and fight in war, who was a vital part of the hunting mission. Uh, we call them mahouts. The Greek word for them was the Indus, the Indian. Um, and there is some debate as to whether these people were always of Indian origin or whether it was just a word um, for them, uh, you know, associated with uh, the place that the Greeks learnt to use elephants in this way. Um, oh, where okay. that came from. Um, the, the term, well, the, the elephant hunter themselves quite often are influential people in the Egyptian society, but they, they've come from elsewhere in the Mediterranean world, from places like Aetolia. And we've got the names of a few notable individuals, people like Lycus and Carimortus, and most extraordinary, an individual called Scopas, who appears in the papyrus evidence. Scopas is particularly interesting because he supposedly set up a coup to overthrow the Ptolemies in 192 BC. Um, and to quash this coup, I think most poetically, uh, his house in Alexandria was surrounded not only by soldiers, but equally an army of elephants. And these were elephants that probably this man had. He, had he, he trapped them and yes. trained them. So wow. I think a just desserts. Divine justice. Um, exactly. <laughs> say. Um, but they are, you're, you're talking about an elite group of individuals in the Egyptian society of its day. Uh, their annual pay was equivalent to that of a scribe. So they are, oh, so this is seriously elite. Yes. Um, but equally, I think there's a lot of danger money that's um, being paid out to you as well because, and this is lost in the ancient texts, of course, because they're more interested in troglodytes, for example. But the process of elephant hunting is absolutely terrifying. You are at risk of being impaled by an angry uh, female elephant trying to protect its young. Um, and the idea of a tusk, uh, you know, penetrating your body at great force, it, it's enough to, I think, terrify anybody. Um, but one can imagine uh, that the financial arrangements were such that you were being paid to be away from your home for three months at a time, at least three months at a time, um, and being paid to put your life um, very much out in, on a limb um, for the service of the king. Yeah. Well, let's drill down a little bit more onto exactly what 
the process was. You mentioned there was an ambush approach. So the hunter would go and sit up in an appropriate tree and wait in ambush for the elephants to start trooping through. And he would jump down on the back of the mother elephant or um, one of the appropriate animals that needed to be eliminated. And at least as the ancient sources tell us, he would grab this animal by the tail would swing rather like Tarzan underneath the animal to hamstring its back legs uh, to cut the, uh, the muscles there to completely immobilize this elephant in order to completely eliminate it. Um, this would allow you then to go and corral the elephant youth um, who were infinitely more susceptible to be trained. And you might do this uh, by having a great big pit that you've dug to try and drive the elephants into there. You might use other tame elephants to try and cajole uh, these elephants away from their mothers to extract them um, oh. using you know, subterfuge and, and intrigue. Um, however, once you've isolated these elephants, you want to ensure that they um, know that you're boss. And some of the more brutal accounts um, involve actually cutting the elephant's neck uh, when you put the rope around it so that the rope grafts to the animal's flesh oh. as it begins to heal, um, oh. meaning that it doesn't want to turn its, its head left and right and it is, is submission, uh, submissive to the captor um, from, from the off. Now at this point the mahout, the trainer, moves in and either using another elephant or you know, the braver ones will jump straight onto the back um, of the newly found elephant. We'll try and drive them back to the port. Um, hopefully you've achieved this before it gets too hot and then you can go and have a jolly nice lunch or something like that. Uh, hopefully you've not been impaled by- oh, I was gonna say, hopefully you still have an appetite, but I, I mean, I, I suppose this brutality was just the name of the game. It's what was required as a, a means to an end. Yes. Um, and you know, if any of the animals have been killed, either necessarily or, or unnecessarily, um, you would uh, spend the time extracting the, the tusk from the elephant's skull um, and take those back with you to the port as well. And then when you're at the port, you've got this waiting game, which is based on the monsoon season. Um, the winds blow in a northward direction from October. And this is the ideal time to be sailing your ships full of elephants up um, to the, the ports actually in Ptolemaic Egypt itself. Um, so depending on, on when these elephants were caught, you probably have between you know, as much as four months possibly uh, spent training these elephants. Oh, and did they have like training camps or something? Or did, did they have bases? Where, where, did they, where did they hold the elephants during this time? Well, the interesting thing with training camps um, is that there's this great belief that they, they did have training camps. The only one, the only place that has been associated with an elephant training camp is actually within the kingdom of Kush. This is part of inland uh, Sudan, inland Ethiopia, as was known at that time. And it's a site called Musarawat es Sofra. It's about 100 miles north of Khartoum. It sat really in the Nile Valley, nowhere near this uh, Red Sea world, and very much uh, the domain of the, the Kushite Empire. Um, this has been seen as an elephant training site because there are so many um, examples of elephant sculpture and elephant reliefs in the artwork here, including an oh. extraordinary um, three-dimensional elephant sculpture which finishes off a wall from the great enclosure at this site. And there was this idea in the mid 20th century when this was all being restored. Uh, and it was noted that there are no staircases anywhere uh, in this site. Um, that actually this was an elephant training site and the elephants were allowed to walk around this 55,000 square acre um, compound and they were domesticated in such a way, which is wonderful. I mean, one imagines, you know, one pictures elephants in togas or himatians. Oh, uh, it sounds around. like free range elephant. <laughs> yes, uh, and, uh, you know, turned into urbane elephants, turned into elephants who, you know, have an appreciation for classical literature, maybe. I mean, 
personally, it's a, a, a bogus interpretation. I think. Yeah, probably. Well, the Kushites, they didn't have, they, they didn't maintain written records anyway. So I was going to ask you how we know about this, but it sounds as if it's, it's art and architectural evidence. It's yes. symbolic evidence. And uh, evidence which has been interpreted, like lots of archaeological evidence, you know, in whatever way the archaeologist wants, um, which is what makes this place, Musarawat, so exciting because we have these depictions and lots and lots of depictions of elephants. And the question of were there elephants in this central region of Sudan in the Hellenistic period? Do they represent a observable population? But there are certain uh, curious characteristics, um, like several of the elephants have what looks like a concave spine. And this is something you don't see in an African oh. elephant, but you do in an Asian elephant. Uh, and certainly there were no Asian elephants stomping around um, this part of Africa uh, in this period. I think the most conclusive evidence which moves, um, moves us away from saying that this is a depicted population, you know, is observable, um, is the question of ivory and how ivory and tusks are depicted on these elephants. Because one sees that actually the elephants with ivory are clustered in certain areas and in certain parts of the site, which can be dated a lot earlier. Um, in the great enclosure, in the main part of the site, uh, there, there's work currently which dates this uh, part of the site to the first century AD, so about 300 years after um, the period that we are predominantly concerned with. Um, and these elephants are by and large devoid of tusks. This could be because the tusks were painted on, it could be uh, because it's not practical in a 3D sculpture to have two great big tusks jutting out <laughs> right. um, in front of you. Um, but certainly it shows that you know, this is not a, a observed elephant population because tusklessness is a variation which one sees in all elephants. Some elephants in a herd will have tusks, others will not. And this has changed over the last 2,000 years where we've you know, hunted these animals into near extinction in places for their ivory. Um, but would be unusual to have an entire cluster of elephants without tusks in, in one specific place. Um, right. So this obviously has a deeper meaning, or at least it does to me. This is, you know, this is where my research is taking me at the moment. Yes, and you, you sent me a really interesting paper that you're working on on this topic. And I, I believe that the, the phrase you used was uh, red herring. Yes, I think you're quite right there. Um, and you know, looking at these tusks or where they're not being depicted shows that there aren't any elephants in this region of Sudan. And therefore this place cannot be used as an elephant training site. But I'm inclined to believe that what is being commemorated is the trade in ivory. And what is, is really interesting is the contemporary economics of the um, ivory trade and how these have never quite been applied properly to the ancient world. We're very blessed um, from the island of Delos, the Greek island in the Mediterranean. Um, to have a series of inscriptions from the third century, from the beginning part of this Hellenistic world, which shows the price of ivory. And from the first one in 279 BC, to the last one, uh, which comes from 250, we actually see that the cost of ivory halves uh, from oh. about eight drachma to, to three and a half drachma. Um, when it has been written about in classical papers, it's been suggested that this is because the, the Ptolemies suddenly flood the market um, with their newfound source of ivory. But contemporary ivory studies actually show that, um, you know, it's demand and supply related. So when the demand goes down, the cost goes down. So what we could be looking at here is the exact opposite. Actually, um, you know, the ivory trade is already declining in the third century BC, and whether that's because they're running out of ivory, um, or whether that's because actually the emphasis is on, we want elephants for war, and we want elephants with great big tusks to go and scare our enemies for war, so we're not going to sell them for ivory. Um, but it's fascinating because the ancient and the modern worlds just keep speaking to each other um, through these, these trumpeting elephants. Um, yeah. 
it makes me think, um, you know, we spoke at the beginning about the, these great big elephants, elephants not being horses. And I said, well, yes, of course, um, there was this idea in the ancient Mediterranean world that everything big comes from India. Um, and this also permeated into the philosophy of how elephants were understood. And from Aristotle um, onwards, we have this lovely idea that elephants live to be you know, 400 years old, um, when in reality, they live about the same stretch of life as man. Um, but I think the remarkable thing about some of these ancient elephants uh, is that they seem to live almost for 2,000 years, this, this construction of an elephant in our minds from the ancient world um, has, to a certain extent, proved Aristotle right, um, that the, the effects of these ancient elephants um, are very much felt in you know, the experience of these animals that, that we engage with today. Yeah, well, and you know, again, I feel like I say it in every episode of this podcast, but it's incredible when we drill down to these often, you know, quite esoteric sounding jobs, you know, to, to modern ears, at least the, the, the connections to the way that we behave in the modern day are just undeniable and quite stunning. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about elephants that were hunted, so to speak, for war. So collected, I guess, really. What was that? How did that work? So we, we, we got the description of elephants in one of these holding pens, these, these training centers. The first question that I, I have about that is how the job of the mahout or the trainer intersected with that of the hunter? Yes, well, they, the mahout and the hunter work side by side meaning that the hunter would be uh, chiefly employed with isolating the infant elephants. And quite often what you would want uh, was the male elephants because they were seen as, as more aggressive or they would grow up to be more aggressive. But whether this is just um, you know, human philosophizing on, on the animal world, um, you would isolate the infant elephants and if necessary, remove their mothers. Then the mahout would jump in, either riding a tame elephant um, or ready to go and mount the, um, the, the recently captured elephant and would undergo a quite a rigorous training exercise, uh, equipping the elephant with uh, the ability to understand basic commands, um, be happy with an individual riding on the back of it, um, and, and preparing it for even you know, manual labor, for pulling carts, getting used to uh, pulling a plow, for example. Um, or as is seen certainly later on, being able to carry what were called towers, these uh, castellated um, boxes that uh, were mounted on top of the elephant and you could put about four soldiers um, in there. The mahout was associated with the elephant for life, so it became a surrogate mother uh, and would uh, punish the elephant and would reward the elephant as well. There's a really interesting counterpart in Africa in the 20th century um, and from the uh, what was the Belgian Congo, then Zaire and now the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the very northeast of this country there's a national park called Garamba and was known throughout the 20th century as being the only place in Africa that had tamed elephants. Um, and the relationship between the mahout and the elephant uh, there was far less established. It was introduced, again, as a colonial whim, really, uh, one of the many problems of, of King Leopold when the Belgian Congo was his, um, was, well, of course I've got to go and have um, elephants. The British have got them. They can play polo on them. So I've got to have um, you know, trained elephants as well. Um, but because this had not been an established practice in Africa, at least for well, going on 2,000 years, there was no real relationship and a connection between the mahout and the elephant. And uh, initially, one of the things that they had to go and do uh, was bring in a load of Indian mahouts who came on uh, a sort of a short-term loan um, from um, whomever, uh, you know, their employer in, in British India at the time. And they were absolutely wretched dealing with these 
um, alien African elephants. In your research, have you come across any accounts of mahouts who seem to have established a special bond with any of their charges, you know, beyond the obviously very close contact and, and communication they would have had to maintain in order to train them? You know, did, did any of them sort of become like pets for them? Certainly in the contemporary Asian tradition, uh, you have your elephant for life, effectively, and they become not so much a pet, but really part of the family. Um, they are at one with you and almost at your beck and call. And these elephants, there are all sorts of wonderful accounts uh, that you know, the elephants will go and work in the morning and then you'll let them out free range for the afternoon, rather like you let your cat out. But oh. they're trained to the whistle and come home in the evening, uh, just when you need them. Um, but... Yes, whether that, that goes above and beyond the, um, or whether that's just the, the ordinary expectation that's part and parcel um, of being a mahout is that you have this, this bond. Whether that's something you choose or whether you're born into it, um, I think is a really interesting you know, question because you know, quite often this tradition is handed down from father to son, from father to son, okay. like you know, any other proud um, business, I suppose, would be. You'd want your son to go and take over the family trade. Um, but I suppose the, the direct answer I've got is, uh, no, I've not found anything particularly yet. Um, but I'm sure there are these these lovely heartstring stories to be found out there. Yeah. Well, and I don't know anything about elephants, I'll confess. <laughs> but from everything we've talked about, it sounds like they're very intelligent animals. Yes, they are. And um, this was acknowledged in the classical world as well. Um, I particularly enjoy Pliny's account of elephants. Pliny the Elder, the Roman writer in the first century AD, devoted 35 chapters of... Um, 35? History, um, ...to the elephant. It was the first animal that he dealt with. And he explores, uh, with a certain degree of, of metaphor, I think, the intelligence of these animals. The elephant, uh, an elephant was trained to be able to write Greek using its trunk, for example. <laughs> and then oh, that being... would have been really cool to see. <laughs> yes. Um, and exposed as a metaphor beautifully because about 150 years later, Elian writes a similar account, but instead of it writing uh, Greek, it writes Latin. Uh, and it becomes of course, a, of course, of course. <laughs> um, and it trans of, it translates the the Odyssey as well, right? The oh, Iliad. Delightful, yes. <laughs> of course, they, in fact, that's really interesting because they all take certainly these battle elephants took um, Homeric names. The Greeks would give them uh, names like Anchises or um, again, I, I just want to say Ozymandias after remembering the Ramses poem um, or Achilles, um, for example. So, Tim, we've talked so much about the laborious process of, of securing elephants and training them so that they could act on humans' behalf in battles. I would love to hear uh, an interesting battle anecdote that you might share with us. That what, what was it like to, to work with and to encounter elephants in battle? Well, there's this scare factor involved in elephants, and ideally... If you've got elephants, the other side is not going to have elephants and they've never seen elephants. And this is why they're never used by the Romans, except, you know, Julius Caesar brings elephants to Britain, um, which is, if you ever go to Elephant and Castle, it's named after <gasps> that, Is that supposedly. where that, I've always wondered where that came from. Wow, that's cool. Um, but it, this scare factor doesn't work if the other side has elephants which I suppose explains the entire phenomenon of the Ptolemies chasing after these African elephants in the first place. Things come to a head at the Battle of Raphia, which is in 217 BC, right at the end of the third century. And the, the Ptolemies in Egypt are fighting their cousins, their Greek cousins, the Seleucids in Asia Minor, um, for the territory of Syria and for the okay. port access that's there. Um, and this is particularly important because the account we have, is, it comes from Polybius, says fundamentally that although Ptolemy won the battle, it was in no thanks to his elephants, who were much smaller. Um, and 
it can be presumed that when Ptolemy won, he took all the nice Asian elephants uh, that were left from the battle and filled his uh, elephant zoo in Alexandria with these specimens, um, these specimens, which later on uh, potentially uh, found their way into Hannibal's army and were marched all the way around the Alps and into Italy, um, which, if true, would be marvellous. The question which is really interesting is you know, about these elephants being, these African elephants being smaller than their Asian counterparts and therefore scared of them. Um, and is relevant because it's been used in the last 50 years by scholars once again to prove the ancient author to be correct. The African raw material being used to prove the uh, ancient source, the ancient European source to be correct. Um, fortunately, this is beginning to be revised uh, and revised once again by science. We're now in a position to be uh, doing DNA analysis on these uh, available elephants. And the elephants which are found today in Ethiopia and Eritrea actually bear more genetic similarity to the savannah elephants, uh, which come further south from ah, Kenya, rather okay. than uh, any indigenous population, um, as would be expected from antiquity. So appear to be a later migration. Um, and admittedly, the samples that have been taken are really quite small. But what is really exciting about this is that you know, there's the possibility that Polybius could just be wrong. Um, and it would be so wonderful if we could just admit it once again. Oh, it's been known to happen. Sometimes those who colonize don't exactly um, tell the straight truth. Yes. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Completely so. And it's, uh, the remarkable thing is how um, this narrative is, you know, scholars worked really hard to actually say this, this ancient source was correct. Um, and modern post-colonial methods is, is just beginning to pick away at this. And I think much to the advantage of, you know, the position of, of the African elephant in, in wider society. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. This is really the watershed, really, I, I think, in terms of elephant battle, because <laughs> the thing to take home from Polybius is that elephants are actually, they're a waste of time, fundamentally. If both sides have got them, they lock their tusks together and they're pushing against each other. It's uh, just like a battering ram uh, or a tug of war, an inverse tug of war. Um, and you know, really, are they any different to perhaps even an atom bomb, for example? Everyone's got to go and have them um, to be you know, mutually destructive. Uh, when all sides have got them, their use and their scare factor has declined. And so one sees this decline in the use of elephants from here until they enter in, in the Roman circus, they're used um, like a number of other animals as entertainments. They are to be killed in the arenas. Um, and again, there's a metaphor there with the, um, the elephant being seen as the, the un-Roman other that can be uh, subdued and put down by the might of the Roman sword again and again and again. Uh, more blood, more gore, uh, elephants, giraffes, lions, you name it, we'll kill it. Um, so long as it looks like Rome wins every time. That's the important Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to think about it. And when you were talking about kind of the, um, you know, zero-sum game of a uh, a battle in which both sides have elephants, the scare factor is eliminated, even if the elephants are of a somewhat different size, right? Because mm -hmm. they, they know what they know what this is. This is not some um, uh, never before seen uh, fearsome beast that they don't even know what to expect from it. But I can't imagine that elephants are as nimble as certain other animals that humans have used at various times in battle. You know, such as a horse, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. I can imagine them being even somewhat of a liability, perhaps. And I'm literally just thinking out loud um, in saying that. But it, I hadn't really thought about that, that aspect of it. What do you actually do with an elephant in battle once you ride in on its back? Yeah. 
and unpredictable as well. Ideally, what you want is to put your 40 elephants, whatever you've got, it's not a big component of your army, stick them on top of a hill so that uh, your enemy can see them. And they will be terrified and they will just go, oh gosh, he's got elephants, we should give in. Yeah, what would you uh, like? I think we can, we can make a deal. <laughs> yes. Um, but an unpredictable animal. And this goes back to the problem that it's really difficult, even today, to have elephants conceive in captivity. So these animals are wild. You capture each one of them in the wild and you make them submit. Um, and they've got this independent streak which runs through them, which is brilliant if you want it to go and uh, charge through and, and knock down the, the tents of your opposition or whatever. It's a bit of a pain if um, they, they suddenly go a bit AWOL and start doing it to you. Yeah, um, or or if you want to have it do maneuvers, right? I mean, you yes. probably it's like turning the Titanic when there's a, an iceberg there. You probably don't always manage to make the turn that you need to in time. Yeah, uh, by merit of its size, but equally, what it it lacks in in terms of you know perhaps dexterity, it more than makes up for in in sheer pulling power. Um, again, to return to Garamba, this national park in the Congo, there's excellent material from the 1920s where they compare elephant plows to tractor-pulled plows and the elephant is far better because you, know, you don't need spare parts for it and it can pull you know, greater weights and it's just a, an invaluable machine for you. So I'd love to um, shift attention to the question of when the elephant received some measure of protection from the state or some governmental body? In the modern world, the conservation movement really begins in the 1920s. And the most remarkable thing from it is that it, it begins by people who were formerly big game hunters. So people like Carl. Really? And why was that? Was that self-interest? Or did they feel badly all of a sudden about what they were doing? Well, it, it should be no surprise that Carl Akeley uh, moved from killing elephants to go and stick them in the museum, which was seen as preservation. Uh, it was seen as, you know, we will eliminate these animals within a generation. So we need to go and kill a couple, stuff them, um, so that future generations will be able to see them. An interesting sort of preservation. Um, moved from doing that, and that sort of conservation as he saw it, um, to advertising, uh, and moved to advocating uh, video and, and pictorial safaris. So you would go and hunt, you would go and shoot, same sort of language for elephants and photograph them. Uh, moved to advocating that. And also the same individual started making cameras. So I think there is a degree of something. Oh, <laughs> that sounds like the, he was also mastering every step in the, in the supply chain. <laughs> that was Completely quite so. a monopoly approach, brilliant. Brilliant um, businessman. I'm not so sure about the conservation. <laughs> yes. But anyway. Um, but I suppose it's, it's just like finding a, a stuffed dodo today. Um, we're very grateful to have those in our museums. And to be honest, I suppose we were looking at a, a similar situation with all of the big game across Africa and Asia. If the, the levels of elite hunting continued um, as they were in the 1920s and 30s. Um, you know, in Asia today, the population or the, the distribution of elephants uh, have of territories only 15% of what they had 100 years ago. Uh, in Africa, it's down by 50%, which is still, you know, it's an extraordinary limitation. And this brings them into conflict with the local communities. Um, the gazetting of the national parks in this period to go and protect these animals you know, had the effect and continues to have the effect of causing great confrontation with these local communities who um, you know, formerly existed not quite side by side, but were able to go and bump off the odd elephant uh, if it was being a nuisance, now are prosecuted um, oh, for this. Okay. And yet still... You know, sort of like deer, deer in this country, that, but it's a, it's a very different situation. The deer population, because of this protection, has burgeoned on the East Coast, for example, um, yes. the Northeast where I live. Um, interesting. And yet there is this, um, this parallel market in the big game hunter coming in again from outside of Africa, spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to come and uh, 
shoots these animals professionally from these reserves um, and that being allowed um, and yet local efforts to to manage these populations um, in a way that they believe and perhaps quite rightly is sustainable um, are now condemned by policies which really began under the colonial governments in the first place. Tim, this has been such a, an eye-opening conversation on so many levels. I expected it to have many layers of complexity coming in, but I have to say that um, what you have shared with us has really exceeded those expectations and has got me thinking in a whole new way about this ancient elephant trade and you know what lessons we really could take from the economics around it even today. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and your passion on this topic with us. Karen, it's been a real treat. Thank you. Since the dawn of human history, we've applied savage tactics to the hunt and trade of elephants, whether for warfare or for ivory. It was the late 20th century before official protections for these majestic creatures made it to the international arena. But illegal ivory trafficking remains a huge problem, and it will continue to remain so as long as there are business incentives and lax or unenforced policies. The truth of the matter? Since the 1989 commercial ivory trade ban was passed by the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, the price of ivory has gone up tenfold. With these incredibly high market prices, poachers have greater incentives than ever to continue hunting and killing elephants for their ivory tusks. The time has never been riper for better informed international policy interventions that could put an end to this developing conservation disaster. As always, no matter how much has changed, whether it be tools, policies, or social norms. Other things, like humanity's consistent wielding of power it doesn't yet necessarily understand entirely, remains the same. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time. Hey there. You can follow today's guest on Instagram at tomoller1996. That's at T-O-M-O-L-L-E-R 1996. And check out Tim's forthcoming piece in New African Magazine as part of Afford UK's Return of the Icons project. He also has an upcoming essay entitled The Fantastic 3000, Nero's Nile Expedition and the Make-Believe Elephants of Meroe, out this fall. Have an idea for a working overtime episode? A question about how we make the show or just want to say hello? Connect with us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. We'd love to hear from you. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series and on Twitter at Working OT Series. Thanks for listening, and please remember to subscribe for more historical time-traveling adventures. Until next time.